you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40. Uh, John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40. And following the reading of Scripture, we will sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and and still do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. Let's bow, let's bow just for another moment of prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we, as we come to you this morning, we pray for the work of your spirit among us and in and through me as I proclaim your truth. May you, O oh Lord, be exalted and glorified and may you open your truth to us in a significant way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The period of the Reformation produced many great and wonderful statements of faith that we have come to know. And I want to introduce you to one in particular. You've heard me quote from it in the past, but it's the Heidelberg Catechism. And beginning with the first two questions and answers today. We are the great heirs of the wonderful uh, statements of, of the Westminster Standards the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and the shorter catechism. And they were written in uh, London in the 1640s. Uh, It was a time of tremendous upheaval, politically particularly. And the long parliament summoned a a group of divines to put together uh, a confession. And it was to replace the 39 articles of the Anglican Church, and they were to prepare a Presbyterian form of government, that that would come in place of the Anglican form of government. It never took root in in England, though it had great, great influence in um, the Church of Scotland. Uh, But following that uh, writing of that particular confession, there were some other confessional statements that followed. They patterned themselves after the, uh, the Westminster Standards. Uh, one was the congregational document called the Savoy Declaration, written in 1658. Uh, you have the Second London Baptist Confession in, of 1689, and they followed appropriately a lot of the wonderful things in the Westminster Standards, but changing for their, uh, some of their specific views. But about 100, earlier, 100 years earlier, there was the development of some 
confessional standards that came to be received and used uh, more particularly in the Reformed churches of the Netherlands and certain other areas. Uh, The first of those three documents was the Belgic Confession. It was written by a man named Guido de Bries. Now, I've probably butchered the French of that pronunciation of that name, but you get the idea. He wrote that in 1561. Uh, He was martyred in 1567, which makes him, I think, the only writer of a confession that suffered martyrdom. So you have the Belgic Confession. A few years later, uh, Frederick III, in uh, his Palatinate in, in Germany, it's not the same Frederick that we are familiar with with Luther's story, uh, but he wanted the Reformed faith to be established in his realm, uh, not Lutheranism or Catholicism. And so he commissioned a catechism to be written. And it was written in the town of Heidelberg, hence the name, the Heidelberg Catechism. And it was written by a professor in the Heidelberg University by the name of Zacharias Ursinus. And the court preacher uh, for many years was thought to be the co-author of it. His name is Caspar Olivianus. Now those are just names that roll off your tongue, don't they? There's just kind of flow. <clears throat> we know they're not going to be in any baby book of names. So uh, at any rate, uh, recent scholarship has shown that really the author was Zacharias Ursinus and Olivianus and a few others. They, were, they came alongside helpers, kind of reviewed it and gave him some assistance. But he was the primary author. And that was written in 1563. And then the last of the third documents uh, was the Canons of Dort, which we've talked about in the past. In 1618 and 1619 at the Synod of Dort, it was the response to the five points of Arminianism. It's what we um, colloquial call our five points of Calvinism. Uh, But it was written... Uh, and in those years, in those three documents, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort, all together have, were collected together and have come to be known as the three forms of unity. Uh, and so you have these two wonderful traditions uh, through the uh, Reformed Church with the three forms of unity, through the Presbyterian Church and the Westminster Standards, uh, and There may be other churches or denominations that do this, but the Reformed churches in New Zealand, they have as their confessional documents both the three forms of unity and the Westminster Standards. So great heritage of faith. So the Heidelberg Catechism was written, obviously, to to disciple um, the people in the Reformed faith. And it came to be divided up into 52 units uh, to, be 50, to be covered consecutively over 52 Lord's Days in the year. And other, several churches have that tradition where they preach on uh, the, the Heidelberg Catechism uh, through the year. And so I hope, though there'll be some interruptions, for us to work our way through this wonderful catechism in the coming year. Uh, I find this catechism particularly wonderful because of its personal nature. Uh, 
uh, even as you see in these early questions, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And you answer in the first person. And so many questions along the way throughout the catechism is, how do you know this? What do you believe about this? And so it's an intensely personal confession of belief and faith and a wonderful presentation of the, uh, the glorious truth of the gospel. And what we have here at the very beginning, uh, establishing the, the groundwork, is the statement of comfort. What is your only, and you might say, sure comfort in life and in death? The Bible gives us the only place where that can be known, uh, where we learn what is a comfort that uh, is sure and solid for us in our life and through death. It's a comfort that can never be taken away. It's It's a comfort that can never fail as we keep our eyes on the Lord. It's a comfort that is sure. And as we look at question chapter one, question one, uh, there are two overriding, two kind of overarching points that describe for us where our comfort comes from. The first is you are purchased by God. You belong to him. The second one is you are preserved by God. So those two thoughts kind of to dominate our thinking here this morning. And the first is that you are purchased by God. You belong to Jesus. And we're going to sing this later on in the service, but I'd like you to turn to in your hymnal to hymn 129. And I would like to read this hymn for you. I know you can read it and you will be singing it, but I want these thoughts to be kind of percolating in your mind as we go through the sermon today. So 129, I belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. I am not my own. All I have and all I am shall be his alone. I belong to Jesus. He is Lord and King, reigning in my inmost heart over everything. I belong to Jesus. Blessed, blessed thought. With his own most precious blood has my soul been bought. I belong to Jesus. He has died for me. I am his and he is mine through eternity. I belong to Jesus. He will keep my soul when the deathly waters dark round about me roll. I belong to Jesus and ere long I'll stand with my precious Savior there in the glory land. I want you to keep those kind of things in mind as we work through some different thoughts. The foundation of our hope, the assurance that our hope is sure, is built on the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's our, built on our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the first thing we see is that you are purchased by God in redemption. 
when we fell into sin with our parents, Adam and Eve, we became under the bondage of sin and under the bondage of the evil one. And uh, the deception of and the deceitfulness of sin is it promises to us good things like Satan promised good things to Eve when he tempted her to sin and eating of the forbidden fruit. But nothing that sin or Satan offers you or promises you, no matter how appealing it may seem, will profit you or benefit you. It will only bring death. And we are reminded in the scriptures that our only hope is that we don't belong to ourselves anymore, that we're not under the the dominion of sin and death. We're under the dominion of Christ. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And in the next chapter, he says essentially the same thing. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. You are purchased by Christ. Uh, Turn to Romans chapter 14, verse 7. Your redemption covers not only this life, but it covers you through death so that nothing can harm you. In Romans chapter 14, verse 7, Paul tells us this, for none of us lives to himself alone and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Earthly pleasures will come and they will go. But this solid comfort will never end. Our circumstances may be pleasurable sometimes. They may be miserable at other times. But our comfort and our hope is true and sure through it all. It's it's solid regardless of what your circumstances are. This is the reminder because of the redemption you have through Jesus Christ. Um, Paul in Romans 5 talks about that we have gained access into this grace in which we now stand. In sin we fall, but in grace we are able to stand even through death. You are purchased by Christ and it's a reminder of the precious price of your purchase. It was his precious blood. Peter says it this way. You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or defect. And the problem that happens for you and for me when we're going through trying circumstances, when we're facing difficult temptations, Uh, and we're wrestling with difficult things as we begin to doubt God's love and care. 
We begin to doubt the assurance of our comfort and our hope. And Paul asks another question in Romans 8. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also freely with us with him give us all things? How is it even possible for God to abandon us when he gave his own son for us? Your comfort is absolutely solid and sure. And remembering the price of your, your comfort helps you to find your stability in that and your hope in that, no matter what the circumstances are. And the, the answer reminds us, what are some of the benefits that we get from that redemption, that we now belong to Christ? There are two in particular that, it, that the, the answer mentions. One is that Jesus Christ has satisfied for all your sins. That's part of the basis of your comfort and hope. Your sins have been taken care of. They've been satisfied. In 1 John, um, it, John writes, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. He satisfies for all your sins and takes the, the, them away and takes the penalty for them away and gives you a place to stand. It's the message of reconciliation. That God no longer is your enemy, but God is your friend. And he's your Lord and he's your comforter. Not only has that price of your redemption that you belong to Jesus um, brought satisfaction for your sins, but it delivers you from all the power of the evil one. He cannot harm you. Uh, he can irritate you, but he cannot harm you. He takes you away from fearful circumstances. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. For the non-Christian, they are terrified, though they may not admit it, of death. They, they dread it. Now you and I as Christians, we may be grieved at death and we may have some um, troublesome thoughts as we anticipate death. But nevertheless, we have a sure hope that goes beyond death. We know where, we know what's next. We know death isn't the end. But in Hebrews 2.14, it tells us how we have transferred from that terror to ultimately even hope. It's speaking of Jesus, since the children have flesh and blood he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He takes away fear. He takes away death. There is no terror that we need to, we need to fear. If we ask ourselves the question, what's the worst thing the enemy can do to us? 
He can kill you. That's the worst thing he can do to you. But what then? You die and go to be with the Lord. You, you go to glory. And that sure hope, the sure hope that you have, the sure comfort you have, doesn't end at the end of this life. It continues on throughout all eternity. You are purchased. You belong to God. You, you belong to him. And he will take care of you. The second thing that we see in this text, in this question and answer, is you are preserved. Uh, We think of our five points of Calvinism, and the fifth point is the perseverance of the saints, and that's certainly a a good truth. It's that one of the evidences, one of the testimonies to our relationship with Christ is that we want to serve him and follow him. But a, a twin truth that's so significant is because you can't persevere on your own. You don't have the strength to do that. A twin truth that goes along with that is the preservation of the saints. God preserves his people. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. The preservation of the saints. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, we're reminded that God will be with us always. He will preserve us. He will be, hold on to us. Nothing can thwart his hope and help for us. Luke 21, beginning at verse 16. Jesus is warning the disciples of things that are to come. And he says, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. And they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. But you say, they're dead. But not a hair of their head will perish. Nothing about them will perish. God will preserve them even through death. It's, what, it's why I had us read John chapter 6. What is the glorious promise of Christ? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not drive away. This is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose none of those that he has given me. But raise them up at the last day. For this is the will of him who sent me, that whoever believes in the Son and trusts in him will have everlasting life. And I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus will not lose any of his children. There will not be a single child of the Father that will perish. Uh, Zacharias Sursinus has some great thoughts on this point uh, or blending really the two of them together. We are his property. Therefore, he watches over us as his own so that not so much as a hair can fall from our heads without the will of our heavenly father. Our safety does not lie in our own hands 
or strength. For if it did, we should lose it a thousand times every moment. He turns all our evils into good. The righteous are indeed afflicted in this life. Yea, they are put to death and are as sheep for the slaughter. Yet these things do not injure them, but rather contribute to their salvation. Because God turns all things to their advantage. As it is said, all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. In the understanding of our preservation, the understanding of our purchase, the understanding of our preservation helps bring the motivation to want to pursue, to to persevere in our faith, to want to do always what pleases God. We won't turn there, but 2 Corinthians 5 is a wonderful passage talking about how when we die, we leave this earthly tent and we're clothed in a different heavenly tent. And one of the motivations, Paul says, gives us in thinking about that wonderful transition that we will have to glory is, so then we make it our goal to please him here and now, whether we're at home in the body or whether we're away, away from it. So the purchase of the saints and the... Pre- the, the preservation of the saints is uh, the heart of our comfort that the Holy Spirit gives us and reminds us of that's woven throughout all of the word of God. But the second question as we move on to that is a very important one as well. It says, what is necessary for you to know that you may live and die with this comfort? And there are three things necessary These are not optional. These are three things necessary for you to know that you may live and die in this comfort. Uh, It's not only an important answer to the question, but it also is sort of an outline uh, of the rest of the catechism. It goes into, first of all, how we know our misery, how we know our deliverance, and how we know how to be thankful. So why, well, let me, so let's think through these three things. Why is it necessary for you to know your sin and misery? It's to motivate you to seek a remedy. If you think you're healthy and you don't need a doctor, but then you become doubled over in pain, you're going to pick up the phone and call the doctor. If you don't understand your sin and your misery... You will never seek the remedy. You will live indifferent to it. It's necessary for you to know your sin and misery to help you to be thankful when you're delivered. If you can think you can solve your sin and your misery, if you don't understand it carefully, then when you are delivered from it, you might think it's no big deal. But you need to know your sin and misery so that you know how to be thankful, that you will be thankful when you're delivered. It's necessary for you to know your sin and misery so that you'll listen to the gospel. You won't hear it. There are many people sitting in churches, many people that have heard preachers, but they haven't paid any attention. 
Because they don't think they need it. But if you understand your sin and your misery, you know you need it. Why is it necessary for you to know how to be delivered from your sin and your misery? Well, it's necessary for you to know that so that you won't be hopeless in your predicament. If you know your sin and misery, but you have no, there's no how to be delivered from it, then you'll, you'll be just left in despair. And you'll feel utterly forsaken. It's necessary for you to know how to be delivered so that you might seek the right path. There are not many paths to God. There's one path through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you won't seek the path for your deliverance if you don't understand, don't know how to be delivered. It's necessary for you to know how to be delivered from your sin and misery so that ultimately you will embrace that remedy by faith. You understand it and you see it, it's truthfulness, and you embrace it. Then the third point is, why is it necessary for you to know how to be thankful? It's necessary because God provides deliverance only for those who are thankful. So if you don't express thankfulness, then you perhaps haven't been delivered. It's necessary for you to know how to be thankful so that you may offer the thankfulness that's pleasing to God. You might think you can thank God in whatever way you will please, but that's not the case. You have to thank God in the way that he delights in. It's necessary for you to know how to be thankful so that your faith and your comfort will be strengthened through your thanksgiving all your days. Do you have this solid comfort and hope? It's through the knowledge of being purchased by Christ that you belong to him. He watches over you. It's through understanding God's preservation of you at all times and in all ways and through and to the very end. Earthly comforts will be temporary. This comfort will last truly forever. And Paul echoes this thought, this reminder that this, this solid comfort will not end even in death. Because he says in Romans 8, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your life may be shaken, but your comfort and your hope will never be shaken. It will be sure and true for all eternity. May you and I know the substance of this sure consolation that we have in the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for 
the reminder of the sure and lasting comfort and hope that we have in Christ. Thank you that we belong to Jesus. And whoever whoever he has in his grip and his hand, he will care for forever. Thank you, Lord, for your preservation of us and all the turmoil and trials and temptations of this life and the tribulations we may face that you hold us in your hand always. May you strengthen us in this hope and comfort to the glory of your wonderful name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.